You are listening to the Philosophy Podcast, presented by LearnOutLoud.com. Here, we will periodically showcase audio renditions of great works from philosophers such as Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Kant, Nietzsche, and beyond. For a complete listing of the Learn Out Loud podcasts, with links to subscribe, please visit our website at www.learnoutloud.com podcast. Thank you for listening. This is the first lecture from the Modern Scholar course, The Enlightenment, Reason, Tolerance, and Humanity, taught by Professor James Schmidt. To check out this course and over a hundred other courses from the Modern Scholar series, please visit www.learnoutloud.com slash modernscholar. In this lecture, Professor James Schmidt talks about what Immanuel Kant called man's emergence from his self-imposed immaturity. The Age of Enlightenment began with the elevation of science and reason in Western civilization. It was an era where great thinkers began to think for themselves and question the absolute rule of religious and political authorities. Professor Schmidt talks briefly about many of the key figures of the Enlightenment, including Denise Diderot, Isaac Newton, Immanuel Kant, Adam Smith, and Voltaire, and then goes on to talk about where the ideas of the Enlightenment prospered, which were primarily in England, Germany, and France. Recorded Books is pleased to present the Modern Scholar Series, where great professors teach you. My name is Henry Strozier, and I'll be your host. Today we begin a course entitled The Enlightenment, Reason, Tolerance, and Humanity. Your professor is James Schmidt, professor of history and political science at Boston University. Professor Schmidt specializes in the history of European political and social thought from the 18th century to the present. He has a particular interest in the debates over the nature, the limits, and the legacy of the Enlightenment, and has published a series of articles in such journals as The Journal of the History of Ideas, Political Theory, American Political Science Review, Social Research, and Philosophy and Literature. Exploring the ways in which 18th century thinkers understood the notion of enlightenment, and the ways in which 20th century thinkers have approached its legacy. He has received a number of grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities, and in 1999 was awarded the James L. Clifford Prize from the American Society for 18th Century Studies. In addition to teaching at Boston University, he has been a visiting professor of government and social studies at Harvard University and has been invited to lecture at a variety of American and European universities. The Enlightenment stands at the threshold of the modern age. It elevated the natural sciences to the preeminent position they enjoy in modern culture. It inaugurated a skepticism toward tradition and authority that decisively shaped modern attitudes in religion, morality, and politics. And it gave birth to a vision of history that saw man, through the unfettered use of his own reason, at last escaping the state of immaturity to which superstition, prejudice, and dogma had condemned him. The world in which we live is, for better or worse, in large part the result of the Enlightenment. This course will explore this remarkable period. It will discuss the work of such influential thinkers as Voltaire, John Locke, Adam Smith, Immanuel Kant, and Benjamin Franklin. It will also spend some time with less well-known but no less influential figures such as Joseph Priestley, 
a clergyman, scientist, and philosopher who was one of the most passionate defenders of the American Revolution in England. As we attempt to understand the full context of the Enlightenment, we will explore the manner in which it inaugurated a new era of human interaction in the public sphere. When members of monarchical societies began questioning the old and rigid systems that bound them, as they strove to build a future guided by law and reason. For more information on this course, please visit its webpage at www.modernscholar.com, where you'll have access to links to related sites, a seminar room to share your thoughts with other students, and yes, of course, a final exam. And now we begin the Enlightenment. Reason, Tolerance, and Humanity. Lecture 1. The Question of Enlightenment. And now, Professor Schmidt. In this course, we're going to be examining the European Enlightenment. It's a period that stretches from roughly the 1680s until the end of the 18th century. What I'd like to do in this first lecture is say something about the general goals for this course, to talk about what we're going to be covering to talk about uh, some of the ways in which we're going to be covering it. But then I'd like to shift and talk a bit about how the 18th century understood itself, how thinkers within the Enlightenment actually described what it was that they were doing and what they hoped to achieve. But before we do either of these things, I thought it might be good to begin with a story, a story that tells us something about what's changed during this period, what's become different over this hundred years. And it's a story about two kings and what they did with their bodies. The first king is Louis XIV. We'll say more about him in the next lecture. What I want to talk about here, though, is a peculiar custom which he still practiced and which his successors would practice. Indeed, people would keep doing this down at least until 1738. What this practice involved was a custom, a superstition, a belief, if you will, that if you had a certain disease, that disease being what we call scrofula, it's a tuberculosis of the lymph nodes, which causes swelling around the neck. If you had this disease, the way to cure it was to be touched by the king. Indeed, that's why they called it the royal disease. The king's touch was supposed to cure this disease, and so if you had the disease and you wanted to be rid of it, you had to go out to Versailles, where the king was now in residence, and be touched by him. Now, the fact that this superstition persisted as long as it did tells us something about how people thought about their kings, both during Louis's reign, before it, and after it. And that is that the king is an intermediary between God and man. The king's body is, in some sense, sacred. And it's for that reason that the king's body is capable of transmitting this healing power. And it's for that reason that you, when you are touched by a king, you will become healed. A century later, there's another king, and I should say something about him, his name is Frederick the Great. He is hailed by many of the thinkers involved in the German Enlightenment as being the most enlightened monarch in Europe. He wrote an essay in 1777, an essay on the forms of government, in which he writes that a monarch, quote, ought often to recollect that he himself is but a man, like the least of his subjects. If he be the first general, the first minister of the realm, it is not that he should remain the shadow of authority, but that he should fulfill the duties of such titles. He is only the first servant of the state. 
It's a rather different vision of what a king is. A king is a civil servant. A king has jobs to perform. The purpose of a king is to advance the public good. This is a monarch, Frederick the Great, who no longer sees himself as a mediator between God and man. He sees the king as simply a man. In 1786, Frederick the Great dies. Frederick dies seated in a chair that's looking out over the spot where he desires to be buried. It's on a terrace in a garden next to his beloved greyhounds. The notion that a king's body could rest with dogs, could be buried in the ground, the notion that a king was simply a man, that's a rather different notion of what's involved in kingship than what we saw a century earlier with Louis XIV. What's come about that changes this? What makes these two monarchs think of themselves differently? What does it say about a world where people have gone from believing that the king is divine to a world in which a king can say that he's just a man, just the first servant of the state? In part, what had happened was something called the Enlightenment. And in this course, we'll be looking at what that involved. We'll be looking at what Enlightenment was. We'll be looking at what sorts of goals individuals who were involved in the Enlightenment were seeking to advance. We'll be looking at the different settings, the different places in which the Enlightenment transpired. And in the end, we'll be looking at what sort of legacy the Enlightenment has left to us. The Enlightenment was an international movement. It spread across Europe, and it reached the shores of the New World. The attention in these lectures is going to be devoted, for the most part, on three countries. First of all, Great Britain. Great Britain is viewed by all of those involved in the Enlightenment as the source of the most advanced ideas, the most advanced ideas in the areas of science, philosophy, religion, and politics. We'll also, of course, be spending quite a bit of time talking about France, because this, in some sense, is where the Enlightenment comes to its fullest flowering, especially in a group of individuals who are responsible for producing the great encyclopedia, and especially the leader of that group, arguably the most brilliant figure produced by the 18th century French Enlightenment, Denis Diderot. We'll also be discussing Germany, because here there's a development of a tradition of thinking about the Enlightenment that draws both on French and English sources, as well as on certain indigenous resources. It's also the place where we have what is perhaps um, the greatest discussion of religious toleration produced by the 18th century, Lessing's play, Nathan the Wise. Now, in terms of the approach that we'll take in this course, we're going to be both looking at a number of important texts and also trying to think about the context that produced them. So we'll be looking at the writings of a number of thinkers who are closely associated with the Enlightenment, and these thinkers would include the Frenchman Voltaire, Diderot, and d'Alembert, British thinkers such as Isaac Newton, John Locke, Joseph Priestley, the Germans, Gotthold Ephraim Lessing, Moses Mendelssohn, and Immanuel Kant. The Enlightenment, however, is something more than just a movement of ideas. It's also something that makes itself felt in the transformation of the world, in the development of new institutions, institutions which, as we'll see in a moment, are part of what's called the public sphere. And so we'll also spend some time talking about that and talk about the development of scientific academies, salons, coffee houses, secret societies, and also about the new types of social interactions that were made possible by these institutions. But perhaps we should ask the question, why care about the Enlightenment at all? And I think there are a number of answers that we can give. In part, 
an interest in the Enlightenment may be no different than an interest which you have in any historical period. The past, as the novelist L.P. Hartley once wrote, is a foreign country. They do things differently there. So one of the reasons why people study the past is the reason why some people like to travel, to satisfy curiosities about different ways that human beings can live, and if we're lucky to acquaint ourselves with certain possibilities, certain opportunities of living that we might have lost sight of. Others of us may feel a certain obligation to those that came before us as their descendants. We may want to remember what our ancestors did and try to understand what they might have hoped for. We may turn our attention to the past to understand the origins of our own situation. It can provide us with a certain point of leverage that allows us to see that certain practices and institutions, which we think have always been there, well, that they're quite contingent in their origins. Things might have turned out rather differently, and knowing that things could have been different, well, that may give us the confidence to begin remaking our own world quite differently. But I would also like to think that the claim that the Enlightenment has on our attention is somewhat different and somewhat more urgent than that of other historical periods. In crucial ways, the Enlightenment is not entirely past. We live, after all, in a nation whose central political institutions and whose governing political ideals were creations of the Enlightenment. The American Revolution was, for many figures who made up the European Enlightenment, the central event of their lives. It suggested that the ideals that constituted the Enlightenment could become something more than simply ideals. They might become realities. But what were these ideals? Now, we won't have a complete answer to that question until we've finished this course, but we can offer a preliminary sketch here. First of all, this was an age that raised science to the level of prestige that it now enjoys in the modern world. The great hero of the age, after all, was Sir Isaac Newton. We need only recall the words of Alexander Pope's essay on man. All the world lay in darkest night. Then God said, let there be Newton, and all was light. This was also an age that was suspicious of the claims of organized religion. It saw religious fanaticism as the great evil that led to conflict and violence, and it regarded religious toleration as the central principle on which any form of truly civilized government would have to rest. Further, it was an age that gave a new urgency to the notion that there were certain essential rights that individuals enjoyed, rights that could be claimed against rulers and against masters. Now, these rights included both those political rights that were enshrined in the American Constitution and especially in the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, but they also included a more general idea, which one can find in places such as Pierre Beaumarchais' great and controversial play, The Marriage of Figaro, the idea that an aristocracy that rested on birth must give way before the claims of individual talent, the idea that it might be possible for a mere servant such as Figaro to know more, to have more skills, and in the end to be a better man than the aristocrat that he serves. The thinkers associated with the Enlightenment stressed that this world was not simply to be seen as a preparation for happiness that would come only in the next world. 
They stressed that being useful to one's fellow men was at least as important as service to God. In fact, for some of them, these were the same thing. Hence, the contributions that were made by those who employed their talents in science, in commerce, and in public life should be honored. And the pleasures of this world, pleasures which included friendship, sociability, material comfort, and, for some, sexual pleasures, these pleasures were not to be dismissed easily. But rather than simply looking at the way in which historians have tried to make sense of the Enlightenment, perhaps it would be a good idea to take a moment and look at a remarkable period in which the Enlightenment attempted to define itself. The moment is December of 1783, and there's a journal in Berlin called the Berlin Monthly. It's the leading journal of the Enlightenment in Prussia. And in December of 1783, the journal publishes an article by the enlightened clergyman and educational reformer, Johann Friedrich Zöllner. Now, Zöllner is responding to an earlier article in the journal, an article which, like many others in this journal, has spoken of the need to enlighten the citizenry. The particular issue at stake here is whether you should have clergy participating in marriage ceremonies. The article that Zillner is responding to has suggested that enlightened citizens really don't need clergy presiding at their weddings. And in the case of unenlightened citizens, it might be a good idea not to have clergy presiding either, because this might give unenlightened citizens the idea that somehow marriage is more sacred than other institutions. The author of the article that Zillner will be criticizing is suggesting that all institutions in society, indeed, are sacred. All contracts are sacred, so why single out marriage? Now, the essay bothers Zillner quite a bit, and he's particularly concerned that there are things going on in Berlin which might be corrupting public morality, and he's a bit concerned about what is meant with all this talk about enlightenment. So he inserts a footnote into his article that asks, what is enlightenment? This question, which is almost as important as what is truth, should indeed be answered before one begins to enlighten, and still I have never found it answered. Now this little footnote that Zillner tosses off in the course of this somewhat inconsequential essay turns out to produce a flood of answers debate about the question, what is enlightenment, spreads from the Berlin Monthly, where there are early responses by the great German-Jewish philosopher Moses Mendelssohn and by the great German philosopher Immanuel Kant. It spreads from this journal to other journals. And by 1790, answers have proliferated to the point where another journal called the German Monthly publishes a review article that looks back over the debate and concludes that there are now 21 different meanings of the term enlightenment which have been given by different writers, and it concludes that the word has become so divorced from any clear sense of what it means that the discussion of the concept has degenerated into a war of all against all. As Christian Gotthilf Salzmann observed in 1787, Many suppose that enlightenment consists of coiffures and of French clothing. Another believes that it consists in blaspheming Jesus. Indeed, I know one young fop who regarded himself as enlightened because he could gossip in French. 
Now, the most famous response to Zellner's question was one of the earliest. It came from the philosopher Immanuel Kant. Kant defined enlightenment as, quote, mankind's exit from its state of self-imposed immaturity. Enlightenment for Kant consisted of having the courage, as he put it, to think for yourself, and borrowing a widely quoted phrase from the Roman poet Horace, he proclaimed that the motto of enlightenment was sapire aude, dare to know, or as he translated it, have the courage to use your own understanding. Towards the end of the essay, he asked and answered the following question. He wrote, quote, If it is asked, do we live in an enlightened age? The answer is no, but we do live in an age of enlightenment. Now, the flurry of responses that were prompted by Zoner's question reminds us that those who participated in what we call the Enlightenment were quite self-conscious about what it was that they were doing. They regularly used terms like enlightening the understanding to describe what it was that they thought they were attempting to do with their writing. And as we've seen from the disputes involving the question that Zoner posed, they were willing at certain times to weigh the question of what enlightenment involved. And they came up with a number of ways of characterizing their age, which are still in use today. They called it the age of enlightenment. They called it the age of philosophy. The French called it the siècle de lumière, uh, the, the century of lights. And most famously, Tom Paine, at the end of the period, called it the age of reason. Now, though there was a fair amount of disagreement in all these essays and in all of these discussions about what enlightenment actually involved, there are a few points that these discussions have in common. Maybe we can talk about them. First of all, enlightenment and the related expressions in other languages that are used during this period always refer to a process, not to a political period. In these essays, one always speaks of enlightenment and never of the enlightenment. In fact, it was not until the 1820s or 1830s that you begin to see the proper noun preceded by a definite article. Secondly, while individuals during the 18th century did characterize their own period as an age of enlightenment, their use of the term differs in at least two crucial ways from our own understanding of the Enlightenment. First, and most obviously, they saw theirs as an age which had not yet ended. The Age of Enlightenment was a project which opened on to a rather uncertain future. They assumed that this was not something that would likely be completed in any of their lifetimes. Certainly no one had the notion that the Age of Enlightenment was scheduled to end at some point in the 1790s, and would be replaced by something called the Age of Romanticism. Secondly, they were quite clear that theirs was not the only age that deserved the name Age of Enlightenment. There were other ages before theirs that had been also enlightened. Greek antiquity was one example that was constantly cited. And at least some of those in the 18th century saw history as a sequence of alternating ages of light and darkness or ages of progress and regression. Indeed, some of the urgency that accompanied the work on the great French encyclopedia 
may have been driven by a sense that they were writing a work that would preserve knowledge through future ages of darkness, hence the importance of getting this work done as quickly as possible and as thoroughly as possible. And finally, while thinkers associated with the French branch of the Enlightenment called themselves philosophes, a word which simply means philosopher, and while they described what they were doing as philosophy, it's important to realize that what they were doing was not like philosophy as it is currently understood. It was not an academic discipline. It was instead something that attempted to change the general mode of thought. It was an attempt to bring about an alteration in the way in which people understood their place in the universe, how they thought about politics, how they thought about society, and how they thought about religion. So, to go back to our story about these two different kings and their and the way in which they viewed their bodies, whether the body, as in the case of Louis Fourteenth, is this intermediary between God and man, or whether in the case of Frederick the Great, it's simply a body. He's simply a man. He's simply the first servant of the state. How then do we get from the world of Louis XIV to the world of Frederick the Great? Well, that's what this course is going to try to talk about, and I thought the way we could do this is begin with our next lecture by looking at Europe in the 1680s, trying to understand what is the world that Louis XIV comes from, what sorts of assumptions he makes about rule, and how those assumptions about rule lay some of the foundations for what's to come. In the next lecture, what I wanted to look at was the relationship between three things which are quite closely linked in the 18th century, but have perhaps come apart in this century, in our own century, namely scientific inquiry, religious controversy, and political dissent. The thinkers that we'll be dealing with again and again in this course were individuals who were interested in all three things. They were concerned about science, they cared about the natural world, they were intensely involved in religious disputes, and many times their intense involvement in these religious disputes forced them into political dissent. In the fourth lecture, we're going to take a look at the man who is thought by many to be the epitome of the Enlightenment, Voltaire, and we'll be talking about the campaign which he wages against, for all of his life, a lifelong campaign which he wages against religious fanaticism. At that point, what I want to do is take three lectures and talk not so much about individuals, but talk about the world in which these individuals are moving, this world which has been transformed by the emergence of something which we call the public sphere. So in the fifth lecture, we'll look at academies, societies for the uh, that attempted to produce useful knowledge. In the sixth lecture, we'll be looking at coffee houses and salons, new sorts of institutions which allow people to cluster together, exchange ideas in rather different ways. In the seventh lecture, we'll be looking at one of the more peculiar features of the 18th century, namely that there were societies at this time that remained secret. So we'll be looking at secret societies. We'll also be looking at the book trade, and like these secret societies, part of the book trade turns out to be carried out in secret. In the lectures that follow, I'll look at one particular individual who had a tremendous impact on his age, namely Denis Diderot. In the eighth lecture, we'll be looking at his participation in the great project of the 18th century, the great project of the French Enlightenment, the Encyclopedia. In the ninth lecture, we'll be looking at some of the writing that Diderot does not publish during his lifetime, writing that's novel, that's audacious, that's outrageous dialogues that deal with philosophers who are sleeping, 
and talking in their sleep with strange ideas, and a dialogue that involves a long conversation with a man who's crazy, a crazy musician named Rameau. In the 10th lecture, we'll move out from France to look at the encounter between Europeans and other parts of the world as the results of voyages of exploration, as the results of a search for a continent that doesn't exist, Europeans are brought into contact with people who behave very differently, who have very different customs, and who have very different religious beliefs. And so we'll have something to say about the impact of this encounter on the 18th century. In the 11th lecture, we'll look at the Enlightenment in another national context, the case here being Scotland, where a group of Enlighteners gathered around uh, Scottish universities, and by thinking about the problem of the relationship between virtue and vice, and thinking about the social context of morality, these were people who laid the foundations of modern social and economic theory. In the 12th lecture, we'll look at another national context, in this case, um, the Prussian Enlightenment, the Berlin Enlightenment, and we'll look at the relationship between these two fascinating individuals, Moses Mendelssohn and Gotthold Ephraim Lessing. The 13th lecture will deal with the age of revolutions, will deal with the question of the relationship between enlightenment and revolution in this rather turbulent age, and in our last lecture we'll try to see what sort of legacies the enlightenment has left to us. Now I began this lecture by saying that the enlightenment was attempting to change the world, it was attempting to transform the world in which the enlighteners lived, but in order to see what it was that these people were trying to change, we need to say something about the world that they faced. So, in the next lecture, I want to turn to the very dawn of the period that we call the Enlightenment, and to the monarch who would soon come to symbolize much of what it was that they were rejecting. His name is Louis XIV, and when we catch a glimpse of him, he's going to be moving into his new residence at Versailles. He will seem to be at the peak of his powers, but he is setting in motion many of the forces which will bring the French monarchy crashing to the ground. This ends Lecture 1.